1799, Anne-Louis Giraudet Triosin, the artist better known as Giraudet, enters a portrait of an actress in the Paris Salon. The most prestigious art show in the Western world, right? Held in the Louvre Palace. But soon after the show opens, Giraudet takes the painting down, slashes it to pieces, wraps it nicely, and sends it to the actress. Three months go by. The salon is about to close. And then, just two days before the show is over, Giraudet brings in a new painting of the actress in the same oval frame. This time, he's portrayed her as Danae, a woman in Greek mythology. She's naked and greedily collecting the gold coins of Zeus that are falling in her lap. There's a cupid meant to suggest the actress's actual daughter, born out of wedlock. There's a turkey with a wedding band, meant to be her husband. There's a satire with coins stuck in his eyes, meant to be her current lover. A dove labeled fidelity is broken and bleeding. You get the idea. The painting is now considered a masterpiece of allegory and revenge. One of the best-known paintings in the collection of the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The ultimate revenge of an artist who wasn't going to be pushed around. While the actress, well, no one talks about her anymore. No one asks whether Giraudet was justified in turning revenge into an art form. Whether Giraudet was a genius or just a to you and me Baby can't you see We can win the day This is The Object Podcast produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art Today, a story of artists and models and what happens when that relationship goes wrong A story of men and women ambition and power and the bloody promise of revolution. I'm Tim Gehring. Anne-Francois Elizabeth Lang is born in Italy in 1772, born to the stage, on the road, probably. Her father is a musician, her mother is an actress. They perform together around Europe until they eventually settle in at the Comédie Italienne in Paris. Anne joins them on stage when she's nine years old. They're show people. And here's how much respect show people get 
in polite society. Yeah. Anne is talented, though, and charismatic, and eventually, objectively, quite beautiful. And so, when she's 16, she's invited to perform at the Comédie Française, the National Theatre of France. She stars in a couple of plays by Voltaire, a year before the French Revolution breaks out. And she's a hit. She's promoted to the top rank of French actors, which means she gets a share of the theater's profits. And she becomes one of the most recognizable faces in Paris. And here's how many rights she has in 1788 as a female celebrity. Yeah. Women have no civil status in pre-revolutionary France. Zero. They're considered, quote, passive citizens. Children. Dependent on men to make decisions for them. They can be locked up, beat up, shut up. They have about as much free will as Madame Defarge's knitting needles. A French woman's job, according to a prominent pre-revolutionary female teacher who had some influence over these things, is the, quote, moral enlightenment of her husband. Her sincere and discreet zeal for his salvation. A woman should support him and, quote, all his interests. And yet, Anne-Francois Elizabeth Lang, or simply Mademoiselle Lang, as she comes to be called, is discovering what power she does have over men when she's on stage and no one can take their eyes off her. Girodet is five years older. And though his parents die when he's still young, eventually he's adopted by a doctor. And when he becomes a man and steps out into the world, it's like... Yeah. Giraudet goes on to study painting in the school of Jacques-Louis David the greatest history painter of the time. And he wins the Prix de Rome Prize and goes off to Rome to study in the French Academy there, where he starts to make a name for himself as one of the top neoclassical neophytes. When the revolution breaks out in 1789 and heads start to roll, Giraudet is out of the country. Mademoiselle Lang is in Paris when the National Theatre becomes a target for its ties to royalty. One of the leading revolutionaries calls out the actors, attacking the, quote, haughty greediness of this usurping troupe. And soon the troupe is attacking itself, physically and violently, a split between royalists and revolutionaries. Mamselle Lang 
follows the revolutionaries, who break away to form their own theater, the Theater of the Republic. But a few months later, she returns to the National Theater, and once again, she brings down the house. But now, in 1793, the revolutionaries are fully in charge. And this time, they close the house altogether for being counter-revolutionary. They arrest the playwright and the actors, including Mamselle Lang. Women had high hopes for the French Revolution, that they would get some civil status, maybe some rights. And in the early going, they do. They get a proper legal status. They're no longer on the level of underage children. And they get some marital equality with men. Men can no longer lock up their wives, or their children for that matter. A family court is set up for settling disputes. And because civil marriage is established alongside religious marriage, women can get a divorce. But by 1793, that progress is starting to unravel. And that fall, when the theater is closed and Mamselle Lang is thrown into prison, the women's movement is attacked as well. Women's clubs and societies are shut down. To the male chauvinists taking charge of the revolution, the women's movement is too radical, too revolutionary. And so, the rights that were so recently granted begin to be unwinded. It looks like the guillotine for Mamselle Lang, but she gets out of prison thanks to friends in high places apparently. Only, she's entrapped in a different way now. One of the most famous women in the country, still indebted to men for her survival. And so, she gives herself to one man after another. And the price is always the same. Giraudet has been in Rome this whole time. While the guillotines are crashing down, he's working on a history painting called Hippocrates Refusing the Gifts of Artaxerxes. He's especially obsessed with the details, like getting the beards right on these Persian emissaries. Until, finally, the same year that Mamselle Lang is thrown into prison, In 1793, the French Revolution comes for him, too. Revolutionaries attack the French Academy in Rome, and Giraudet narrowly escapes the Naples. In a way, both Giraudet and Mademoiselle Lang are survivors, right? Latching on to whatever and whoever they can, 
to put food on the table and be their best selves. But Giro Day has options. When he arrives in Naples, he declares, quote, My project is to travel through the environs of Naples and stay there long enough to extract from this countryside everything of interest that it offers for art. And so he does. He stays for two more years, painting landscapes. Mamsel Lang, meanwhile, has a terrible relationship with a notorious weapons dealer who ends up defrauding the treasury and is sentenced to prison. She has her daughter with another man, a wealthy banker from Hamburg, inciting a sordid custody battle. And two years later, she has a son with yet a different man, a Belgian carriage maker who also becomes a war profiteer, making a killing, as it were, supplying the armed forces. She marries the Belgian on Christmas Eve in 1797, a ceremony so prominent it's attended by the foreign minister of the French Republic and one of the directors of the Republic. Even as she's rumored to be having an affair with another director in charge of the army. Giraudet has by now returned to Paris, and he's starting to get some big commissions. So, when the Belgian man goes looking for an artist to commemorate his marriage to Lang with a portrait of her, Giraudet is a good and willing candidate. He not only gets the picture in the Paris Salon of 1799 when it opens in mid-August, he actually has two paintings on view. But it's the one of Lang, now Madame Simons, that attracts the most attention. Five days after the show opens, a pamphlet begins circulating outside the Louvre, criticizing Giraudet for giving such a lifeless portrayal of the actress's, quote, soft and voluptuous traits. He's made her hair look like rags, the critic says. Giraudet removes the painting the very next day. He destroys it and sends it to Lang, who is entertaining some guests, apparently, when the package arrives. Beautifully wrapped, and she opens it to find herself torn to pieces. Now, the story is usually told that Lang had been embarrassed by the critique of the portrait, that she was vain and found it unflattering, and asked Giraudet to take it down, and refused to pay him. But that doesn't add up. The portrait had been finished long before the salon 
possibly by as much as a year. And as we know, it would not have been Lang's money to spend, right? Also, there seems to be some question about the price. It's not clear that Giraudet even specified a price. In fact, after Giraudet tears up the portrait, other artists, who might have been expected to take his side if a client was withholding payment, start coming out on her side. Weeks after Giraudet sends the torn-up portrait back to Lang and hangs up the new, scandalous picture, artists seem to recoil in disgust at the pettiness of one of their own. Some of this is fueled by jealousy. Giraudet had been given a massive government commission around this time, a commission that many artists feel should have been put up to public competition. One artist suggests that many painters would have been all too happy with Lang's portrait and a shot at the government commission. And instead, the entire glory of the country seems to have been plopped in Giraudet's, quote, accomplished and vengeful hands. Eventually, Giraudet and Lang agree to put out a public statement denying the worst assertions from both sides, so they can move on. But only one of them, in fact, can move on. By the time Giraudet's portraits are hung in the salon, Lang is already essentially retired from acting. She made her last regular appearance a week before her wedding. And her only role now to serve her husband. Okay, let's go all the way back to the time of myth, of Danae, the woman that Lang is supposed to be in Giraudet's second portrait. Now, Danae is a human in the world of Greek gods, right? Her father is told by an oracle that Danae will have a son who eventually kills him. And, well, he doesn't want that. So he locks Danae in the basement of a tower where no man can, you know. But still, Zeus, god of all gods, finds a way to rape her, falling on Danae as a shower of gold. And she gives birth to Perseus, the hero, who in fact does kill his grandfather, accidentally, with a javelin. Well, you don't have to look too hard to see the parallels between Danae and the women of France, even after the revolution. After the portrait scandal and retiring from the stage, Lang moves to Switzerland with her children and her husband. But he soon loses his business and his fortune slips away. 
And now, Hung is really trapped. When the portrait scandal is being put to rest, one commentator says, well, maybe the new Salacious portrait isn't so bad. With its portrait of Lang as a kept woman, of all these wealthy men. Because there aren't really any kept women anymore, he says. No one will actually believe that she is one. It's not like the old days, he says, when a line of 10 or 12 women would form outside the mansions of wealthy men on payday to get their monthly stipend. Kept women. The revolution has put an end to all that. Now, he says, you marry for love, for passion. And yet, here's Lang in Switzerland, having given up her career for a man and his money. And for what? The family is now nearly destitute. And in 1810, Her husband dies. By then, the revolution has crumbled entirely. Giraudet has ingratiated himself with the new regime, Napoleon. He's commissioned to paint 36 full-length portraits of the dictator for display throughout the empire. Lang moves around. And as she moves farther away from France, she moves further away from whatever remains of her celebrity. Until, finally, she's back in Italy, where her story began, in Florence. She dies there in 1816, only 43 years old, her history already being forgotten. She is the woman in the oval frame now, in the tower built by men, that she can never really escape. You said you loved me right from the start. You said you cared for me with all your heart. You even said that we would never part. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I'm Tim Gehring. Join us next month for a new episode. And please subscribe. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for listening. <laughs>